Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be back in Luke chapter 5 again this week. Luke chapter 5. Right at the end of what we looked at last week, there is one verse that I want to focus on and open up a little more than I did last time. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. This is Luke 5.16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the, the preaching of your word. Father, that you would illumine our minds to understand it, that you would help us to be those who hear your word and do it. Father, and that we would, uh, we would not be deaf, we would not be hard-hearted towards your word, but Father, that we would yield to it and yield to you by yielding to it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus, the Son of God, the, would, would go off by himself in order to fellowship with his Father, uh, even or especially in the midst of those uh, three years of intense public ministry, uh, which would lead at the end of it to his crucifixion, to his uh, sacrifice on the cross, he would leave the crowds behind and uh, go by himself so that he could pray. When the demands upon his time were the greatest, uh, he was still compelled at that time when the demands were great to retreat from all those demands and from everyone and find a solitary place where he could uh, pray to his Father in heaven. Uh, Sprinkled throughout the Gospels, we are told that Jesus had this habit of going off by himself to pray, in Matthew chapter 14, we, uh, we read this about Jesus' habit. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. And in Mark chapter 1, we read this. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. So up early in the morning before anybody else was up doing the work of prayer. In Mark 6, we read this, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. He would, uh, uh, occasionally I drive up to um, uh, cow pens, right, because I love those fields out there and uh, and, uh, for the purpose of of prayer. In Luke chapter 6, we read this, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. In Luke chapter 9, we read this. And it happened while he was praying alone. It goes on from there. Luke chapter 11. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Right? So we see that Jesus is often getting out by himself to do this work of prayer. Now, we, we have a tendency always to read our own experience into Jesus' experience. 
we have found it difficult to be regular in our departure from the demands placed upon us by our families, by our work, by our phones, by our entertainments. And so we believe that Jesus had to be careful to make time for prayer. Right? That he had to make time for prayer. And we believe he, he really had to carve out and reserve and protect this time for prayer to his father, but more true to reality would probably be this statement. Jesus had to carve out and reserve and protect time for anything other than prayer. Right? In other words, prayer was his ease. Prayer was his retreat. Prayer was his relaxation. It was his recovery. It was his delight. Uh, it was it was fellowship with his father that was uh, a delight to him. It was part of the glory he had with the father before the very foundation of the world. And so the ministry he did for the salvation of our, of our souls uh, was the time where he would submit to his father's will and work. Prayer, though, was his delight. Right? It was his desire. The work of redemption was was submission to the will of the Father, work for which he even asked the Father to be relieved of um, when he prayed, take this cup from me. So having this example of Jesus interrupting his, his prayer in order to do everything else, why do we find it so hard to interrupt everything else in order to get ourselves, uh, to get by ourselves and pray? We're too busy to pray, but Jesus was too busy not to pray, right? We're too tired to pray, but Jesus, you know, after healing crowds of people and ministering, everybody cosmically sucking energy from him, I mean that physically and emotionally, right? Um, he would at that point then go off and pray, right? He was... He was too tired not to pray. And Jesus, who in a sense needed nothing because his Father had given him all authority in heaven and on earth, would pray to his Father. But we, who are just dust and ashes, unable to come uh, to an end in our weaknesses and needs, are prayerless. Jesus needed nothing and he prayed. We need everything and we don't. If Jesus regularly prayed, how much more do you and I need to pray? One of the reasons we don't pray is we don't do what Jesus did. Right? What Jesus did in order to make prayer possible was he went somewhere secluded. He got by himself. He got away from distractions. Right? He went off somewhere where he could be all alone. Today, it's very difficult to find a secluded place to be um, and to be alone. Why? Because we're all carrying around electronic devices that, that we expect to interrupt us no matter how important. How many awkward situations where have you been in? You're, you're counseling somebody to, to not commit suicide and your phone goes off. I mean, it's insane how we let our phones interrupt us. Our phones keep us connected to friends and to spouses, to children, to every bit of chatter on the internet, to tweets, to push alerts, to score updates, right, to breaking news alerts, and all of it's popping in. Do you remember 
Uh, do you remember the age before cell phones? Do you remember it? Some of you can. Some of you have never lived in the time before the cell phone started interrupting us. Um, something that strikes me about that age was you could go whole days without knowing the specific location of even your closest friends. You could go weeks. And, and then when you saw them, you actually had to catch up with them. You actually had to communicate about what had gone on in the last two weeks or two months or two years. But now we have Facebook that does that for us. And so when you see them after two weeks, it's just awkward. You know everything they've done. You just haven't heard it from the horse's mouth, right? Um, husband could leave for work in the morning and a wife might not know where he was until he showed up back at home that evening. That is inconceivable today. Right? Today we panic if we don't get a text back from our spouses or children within five minutes um, after sending them one. Right? If we miss someone's call or text, we feel that we've almost betrayed them. And all of this adds up to make it impossible to be alone. It's, it's what happens. Impossible to find a place to be secluded. In fact, it goes beyond just making it impossible to be alone. It's made us, it's made us incapable of being alone. We get fearful now if we're secluded and by ourselves without any interruptions at all. We feel, we've, we've, we've begun to feel like the world is passing us by. We've begun to feel like emergencies could be happening that I'm completely unaware of in my home, in my city, in my country, right? And so it's, it's incredible how all of this has, has um, made it impossible to be alone and made us incapable of being alone. When we are out in the wilderness without any connection to our constant stream of information, we feel deprived, and some of us even feel depressed, right? We may be by ourselves much of the day, but we are never alone. That's what these, these electronics have done to us. My good friend Steve Berenzi, who was here a few years ago, was it a few years ago? Or last year? Two years ago, to speak to us at our conference, teaches at Columbia International, wrote an article for Touchstone Magazine, um, in which he addressed these things, and he's, um, in general, he's addressing the question of what Facebook does to us, but it applies to this topic of not being alone. He writes, the tyranny of the trivial exercises over our lives uh, is per per perpetual and incessant. Um, and it's particularly the incessant Facebook update that interrupts. It makes us a society of drone bees flitting restlessly from flower to flower. We never pause because there's always more nectar to gather somewhere else. We've learned to live with a constant low-grade chatter of information in this world of instant gratification. We demand to know everything and now. It's easy to lose our bearings in the flood of irrelevance that swamps our lives. In the shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains, Nicholas Carr says we, we now have jugglers' brains. Like the cat in the hat, we have to keep many things in the air at the same time. There's no time to stop and rest, no time to think, no time to spread deep roots and watch seeds grow. Such things demand patience. 
which is an endangered virtue in our culture. Later in the same article, Steve gives this helpful reminder. He, it, it's, it is shameful that this even needs to be said, but it does. He writes, finally, the reason that really belongs first, the greatest of all friends, the friend of friends who laid down his life for you and sticks closer than a brother, never to leave you nor forsake you, doesn't have a Facebook account. We're exhorted to seek the face of our faithful friend Jesus, but because he's not on Facebook, we seek all other faces but his. Ask yourself this, where do you tend to go first? To Facebook or to the book where you see his face? Do we seek the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? This is the eternal glory that does not fade away with the loss of Wi-Fi. We find the glory of Jesus' face in his word. In his word. We need to fight these temptations. In the, in the end, my point is we need to fight these temptations to never be alone. Right? We need to make sure that there are many times when we unplug, when we're unavailable, when we're off the grid, when we're by ourselves as Jesus did. Right? In order to pray to our glorious and almighty Father in heaven. And not just our, our, our glorious and almighty, but our, well, almighty is the, the synonym, but omnipotent, right? Our omnipotent Father. Jesus had more demands on his time than we will ever have, and yet he made sure he found himself alone for the purpose of praying to his Father. Make it so that you are unavailable at certain times, morning and evening. Go for a walk so that you can pray, and don't just put the phone on vibrate. Leave it at home, right? Leave it at home. Yes, you may be struck by a car. Yes, you might be robbed. Yes, all kinds of terrible things could happen to you. A meteorite could strike you in the head, and people are just going to have to find out about it the old-fashioned way, right? And hopefully someone will have a cell phone near who can call 911, (laughs) but it won't be yours, right? Leave it at home in the office desk or in the chair. Jesus had to withdraw, right? He had to withdraw. He had to, and and, um, so do we if we intend to pray. When Jesus taught about prayer, the command to go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret was not only about avoiding the vanity of the Pharisees who liked to be seen when they prayed, it was also just about getting alone without distractions, alone with the Father. Jonathan Edwards describes the times he withdrew from everything for the purpose of prayer in his personal narrative. And let me give you a bit of that. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward, sweet delight in God and divine things that I had, have lived much in since was on reading those words in 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul and was, was as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as those words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up in him in heaven 
and be as it were swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying and as it were singing over these words of scripture to myself and went to pray to God that I might enjoy him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart. My soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. My mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I found no book so delightful to me as those that treated of these subjects. These words, Canticles 2.1, used to be abundantly with me. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. The words seemed to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ. The whole book of Canticles used to be pleasant to me, and I used to be much in reading it about that time and found from time to time an inward sweetness that would carry me away in my contemplations. This, he says, I know not how to express otherwise than by a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from all the concerns of this world, and sometimes a kind of vision or fixed ideas and imaginations of being alone in the mountains or some solitary wilderness far from all mankind, sweetly conversing with Christ and wrapped and swallowed up in God. The sense I had of divine things would often of a sudden kindle up, as it were, a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of soul that I know not how to express. People hate Jonathan Edwards for words like this. People say that Jonathan Edwards was an emotionalist, right? People say that he was, um, was a, a revivalist, and um, that makes me sick that people dismiss Jonathan Edwards in that, in that way. These words meant he was a man who loved God and God alone to love God and meditate on him. That's all they mean. And the exhortations of Scripture to do that for all of us are um, from beginning to end of the Word of God. And the question is, do you have times like this, times when you are fellowshipping with the lover of your soul? Right, times when the thought of God and of his word is just filling your mind and, it, and there's no distraction. It's like a focused filling of the mind. Right, times when you are simply enjoying your father, times when it's clear that your chief delight and your greatest joy is thinking about the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ, times when you are simply alone with God, thinking upon him. I don't think there are many of us who do this. I know it's, it's few and far between the times when I pursue this. And even when I do pursue it, very few of those times does my mind disengage with the notifications on my phone. Right? I don't think there are many of us who delight in being alone with God. I don't think there are many who are concerned to withdraw from from their entertainments. I don't think there are many who want to be like the man described in Psalm 1. In God's law, he meditates day and night. Right? I don't think there are many of us who think it, it would be a productive day to spend even one of 24 hours in secluded prayer. That would be an unproductive day. I mean, 
Think about spending half the day in prayer. Completely unproductive. I mean, I would feel guilty communicating with Almighty God for 12 hours in a day. Right? I don't think many wives would allow their husbands such freedom to do that, or husbands who would allow their wives and make it possible for her to, to know this sort of freedom. I mean, it's, it's the urgency, the tyranny of all the things we've got going on. There are diapers to change, there are family gatherings to attend, there are restaurants to try, there are games to play, right? Money to be made, there's sermons to write, there's grass to mow, books to read, there's, you know, you, there's an unbelieving world to witness to. And there's status updates that have to be pushed out, right, so that we can boast. I mean, we're, we're more inclined, aren't we, to post a picture of us praying than to pray. We are more inclined to post a picture of us doing devotions than actually doing devotions. I mean, it's so pathetic. It is so pathetic. We're so vain, Right? Why is this? Why are we careful not to be alone with God? Why are we careful, it seems, to not be alone with God? Why will we not imitate Jesus and his withdrawing from everything and everyone? First, it's what I just said, the tyranny of the urgent, right? We've got things that have to be done, and if I don't get going on them now, then the rest of the day is going to be unproductive and chaotic, and then my husband will yell at me when he gets home and the house is a wreck, Right? The choices we make each day to be engaged with the world, which includes many good things like our children and our spouses and our coworkers and others, we choose engagement with the world rather than engagement with God. Now, we, we're not called to be out of the world. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. We are called to engage with the world and be engaged. God did not take us out of the world, but the, the, we make a choice, Right? to be engaged with the world rather than at any point be engaged with God. Another reason why we don't withdraw for the purpose of prayer is because we don't believe prayer does anything. And that's just unbelief. That's just unbelief. Another reason we don't believe meditation is good for anything, right? To, to be just thinking on something seems like the height of decadence and unproductivity. I'm going to think about God. I'm going to meditate on God's glories for the next, let's see, 30 minutes. And at the end of it, we just, we just have taught ourselves that we haven't been truly engaged with anything. Another reason we are addicted to our false intimacies and so incapable of being alone. So all of these, these false intimacies that we've chosen over real intimacy with the one who made us. We don't, we don't think God of God as our priceless treasure, right? We don't think of God as our priceless treasure. We have many lesser treasures that are perfectly satisfying and occupy our time for a certain amount of time. They get boring, but they get upgraded, right? And then you get to search through all the new upgrades, and it's a wonderful thing, right? God, the same yesterday, today, and forever seems so boring to us. The Word of God doesn't change. It's, it's the same. 
It's the same Bible you open up every time. There's no upgrades to it, although they're trying to do that, and I wouldn't suggest you get any of the upgrades. Um, now, the reason we don't get alone for the purpose of prayer, we have guilty consciences that dislike the presence of God. We have guilty consciences. We've given ourselves to particular sins uh, during the week. We've been harsh with our children. We've, we've um, whatever it may be. And, and so to be in the presence of God and to be praying brings those sins that we've committed to mind. And so it's, it's convicting, right? And who wants that? Another reason we don't get alone to pray with God is perhaps we just don't know God. We don't know God. That would be a reason why you would never get alone with him is because you have no knowledge of him and you haven't come to know him and there's no reason that you have determined why you would want to know him. That which we don't know and we don't find at all compelling will not draw our attention or time. That which we don't like or find compelling doesn't get our attention. Right? A man who has never been on a golf course is not a golfer. A woman who has never played a musical instrument is not a musician. So also a person who does not do as Jesus did, being alone with God for the purpose of prayer, is not a Christian. Edwards said, The spirit of a true convert is a spirit of true love to God, and that naturally inclines the soul to those duties wherein it is conversant with God and makes it a delight in approaching him. But a hypocrite hath no such spirit. He is left under the reigning power of enmity with God, which naturally inclines him to shun his presence. Now remember Jesus' example here. He went to a secluded place for the purpose of prayer. That's it. Perhaps, first of all, what you need to do is, is determine what time that's going to be. There are times when it's easier to be secluded from other people than others, especially if you, if you have a large family, and that's about 5 in the morning. Okay, 5 a.m. is an amazing hour. 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Everybody gets up at 6, right? I mean, that's when everybody... Well, it depends... I know. But if you're working and you're normal, somewhere between 6 and 7 you're waking up, right? That's probably the majority of us. But 5 to 6, you've got that time that you could set aside to spend in prayer and meditation on God's Word. 5 to 6 o'clock, right? And so put put the coffee brewer on to brew the coffee at 445, Right? It's ready for you when you're there. All you have to do is get the coffee, get the Bible, and go sit. And the first week of that, you, you will not be able to focus. You won't be able to pray because your mind will be racing um, about the things you want to get done during the day. Right? You won't be able to focus on the reading of the Word. You'll be thinking again about what you need to do. But over the course of time, when you give yourself to that dedicated time you will find that it becomes more and more profitable as God uses it and the Spirit works in it, right? Five to six. That might mean you need to go to bed earlier or go to bed when your children go to bed at 8.30, which is wonderful. I mean, if you can pull it off, it's 
it's wonderful. It's hard to pull off, right? But, but this is the sort of thinking. Um, but again, it still sounds like I'm recommending you squeeze some time into fellowship with God. That's sad, right? That's sad that that's how we have to approach to do this. We, we should have a desire to be learning his word, to be setting before him prayer. And, and we're all racked with so many anxieties. I mean, that's another thing that, that notifications do to us is just increase our anxiety level. And for everybody who doesn't vaccinate, I mean, these coronavirus things must be freaking you out. You know? And it's like everything militates against us quieting our soul before God. Everything. And so prayer is the antidote to anxiety. Prayer is where we lift up our anxious thoughts to God and he gives us his peace. And so there's so much more that could be said about this, but I just want all of you and I want us as a church to be those who are committed to prayer. And we'll see fruit from this. I mean, we'll, we'll immediately see the fruit in our own lives of just peace. But we'll also see God at work in our body, making us more productive and more fruitful and dedicated to um, less to the world and more to his kingdom, right? We'll see all of that as an effect of this getting alone for the purpose of prayer. And so find I'm saying it again, squeeze it in, right? No, I'm like, I should be saying, love Jesus so much you want to spend time with him, right? Love God so much that you have to communicate with him, right? This is a function of our affection, our affections being cold and lukewarm toward the Lord. And so it needs to be that we have such joy and wonder and love for the Lord Jesus Christ that that we go to his Father, continuously, and, and it's our delight.